Hi, welcome to the Yo and Renee podcast. I'm your host, Yo and Renee, and in this podcast, we will talk about philosophy, religion, political thought, and culture. I hope you enjoy. Okay, and welcome to the Yo and Renee podcast. I am your host, Yo and Renee, and today I'm joined by the lovely Mindy Schrapper. Woo! My wife, Mindy Schrapper. Who is a little flamboyant, like my husband. She is, and I'm also a little bit, unfortunately. I like to be more manly, but uh, never happens. <laughs> okay, so I wanted to talk today about biblical criticism from heaven, which uh, which would be about um, academic Bible studies. I want to smooth a little bit about academic Bible study and, and uh, the Orthodox from Jewish world and its reaction to it, because I just uh, finished... Um, Joshua Berman's book on biblical criticism for a firm community called uh, Anima Amin. And I thought, I figured, it's, you know, it's a good topic. It's becoming a little popular now. We have the Torah.com, I think. Torah.org. The Torah.org by uh, Rabbi Dr. Seth uh, Farber, or Faber. And um, they, talk about, uh, they talk about biblical criticism and the Parsha. So I figured we'll talk about that today. Okay, I'm going to be the guinea pig because I am very uneducated and illiterate. And additionally, I come from a basic of education where we were taught a very black and white unilateral view of um, the concept of Torah Misenai. And it was something that I questioned as a high schooler. And, um, you know, ever since marrying Yoel, I've obviously become slightly more educated. But given that my interests um, don't go run as deep as Yoel, I only have a topical understanding of the of the area. So I will be asking dumb questions. No, I will be asking um, questions from a plaque of information that hopefully will be representative of typical questions that your audience would have. Okay, well, let's also make clear, though my name is Johan, which is my birth name, but we, Mindy calls me Yoel because that's my Hebrew name. But uh, that, that when I converted to Judaism, I took on the name Yoel. So we'll hear Johan and Yoel interchanged. Yeah, and when I... Uh, when I met him, sadly, he did not inform me of the glories of his beautiful name, because obviously I think Johan Rene is much cooler than Yoel, given that I'm from a community where there are lots of Yaelis, and I always resolved I would never marry a Yaeli, and look at me, here I am. <laughs> Marrying a Dutch Yaeli. Well, <laughs> the worst thing that could happen to a person. Okay, so you grew up in, uh, in, uh, in Borough Park. In Indeed. Bro- in Brooklyn. A tree grows in Borough Park, known as Mindy. And uh, you went to Beis Yaakov, and you said you weren't educated, but I think I actually disagree. I think that... Uh, no, I didn't say I wasn't educated. I said I don't know much about biblical criticism. Right. Or, or academic biblical right. studies. Right. Okay, fair enough. But I just wanted to make clear, like, it's not like you're, like, ignorant of Tanakh. And... No, I think that we got an exceptional education at Beis Yaakov, and I'm very grateful for it. I mean, obviously, we didn't learn, because of the ideology, we didn't learn Mishnah or Gemara, um, you know, except for some sources here and there. But our homage education was really good. Um, I, yeah, our homage education was really good. The other ones require a more in-depth discussion because, um, you know, it's just a particular focus. But anyway, but that's irrelevant to this conversation right now. But I can definitely still pick up um, Across Godolos and read them before him, even though it's been, hmm, a good 15 years since high school. How old am I? Something like that, yeah. Well, you're you're pretty good with Hebrew. You used to translate 
Haredi novels from Hebrew to English. <laughs> okay, I did that a couple of times. I, I don't know if I would say that was a regular thing on my hat. But yeah, and my mother, as you know, is Israeli, so we grew up speaking Hebrew. So Hebrew is a lingua franca, lingua mata, whatever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now I'm going to display my ignorance of colloquial phrases. Right. Well, I'm, I'm a foreigner, so you don't have to be embarrassed to speak English in front of me. I'm people. never embarrassed. I'm always confident. Anyway, irrelevant joking aside. So, um, do you want me to talk about the perspective that I grew up with? Yeah, let's just share the traditional uh, from viewpoint that you grew up with. But also, let's not like focus on biblical criticism, but just more academic Bible in, in general. But uh, first, why don't you... Uh, Okay, so here's the thing, right? I don't even know what you're talking about when you say academic Bible, because as a firm person growing up, right, the the hot topic and the the point of controversy and the the only point of think I think of academic biblical criticism that that the Haredi world knows that is even relevant to their life that they contend against is the idea that the Torah was not written entire dictated entirely by Hashem by God and written down by Moshe, right? The only okay, so I'll tell you the only thing that I grew up with the only like ground conceded to the concept that maybe Moshe didn't write everything that was commonly taught at least was that Moshe didn't like write the last eight lines maybe God wrote it or he wrote it with his tears or Yeshua wrote it right and I can vividly recall one of the questions I had around high school was um, I asked my teachers how was the process of like, how was the Torah written down? Did Moshe receive every word at Har Sinai? And how would he have received every word at Har Sinai? Because it talked about events that hadn't happened yet at Har Sinai. Or did he receive a lot of it at Har Sinai, you know, up to the present moment, and then received more of it as it happened, or the rest of it before he died, right? Which, now looking back at it, it's like it was just a very basic question. And my teachers, you know, weren't quite sure how to answer. They, I don't know. Those are fireworks, by the way. It's July 4th. Our neighborhood is pretty safe. It's not July 4th. It's July 5th. Whatever. doesn't matter. Same thing. <laughs> July 4th weekend. Fair enough. Very excited neighbors we got. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So the difference between, like, uh, when I say academic Bible, it's much broader than just biblical criticism. Because often when people say biblical criticism, they think uh, the uh, source criticism, like uh, that the, the Torah is divided in four for different sources from different time periods with an redactor, mm-hmm. right? Uh, J, E, P, D, and uh, E, right? And, then, and let me just say the Haredim will usually add, add things like G, B, W, F, Q because to make fun of them. Well, just... <laughs> and they have, it's, there's a place to make fun of things, right? That's competing worldviews in a way. So, but academic Bible is much larger and it, it, it transcends, uh, it transcends like that particular hypothesis which is called the documentary hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so um, I don't think this was much of an issue. Like, I don't think the Haredi world has much of a familiarity with what you are referring to in terms of academic Bible, because I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, what do you mean by academic Bible? And um, it must not be controversial enough to provoke their ire. Academic Bible is any, any, anything related to biblical history or biblical interpretation through the academy. So using uh, the uh, using the uh, modern tools of uh, of uh, historical studies and using the literary tools, things like that. So it's a much broader topic. But yeah, so the reason I don't I don't want to go into GEPD LMPMS, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to go into source criticism because source criticism is very sp- specific and it's very geeky. 
And uh, it, the, the real challenges that the firm community has comes from uh, from biblical studies in general. From America. okay, so let's hear about biblical studies. What what would you say? Let's start with the methodological premises. How does it function? What are its axioms? And how does it differ from a traditional Jewish perspective of Bible? Right. So biblical studies, if so, academic biblical studies, if you say axioms, well, first of all, it assumes that the biblical text is like any other, oh, there's fireworks again, any other text, uh, sorry, I have the fireworks. It's just adding some pizzazz to this episode, showing you just how scintillating this topic is. Right. So... Where was I? The axioms of biblical academic biblical studies. Right. So it it says that the biblical text is like any other text. Well, before that, Christian Jewish tradition, of course, saw the text as biblically as divinely inspired. So, academic Bible, which some people place already in the time of Spinoza, its founding, where people start analyzing it like any historical text. Mm-hmm. Which means you don't assume there is a God, or you don't assume that God has revealed Himself. Okay, so how does it play out in interpretation of the text? Well, um, if you assume there is no God, then any uh, any text that is attributed to God or any encounter with God would be assumed to be uh, a mythological non uh, non event, right? Meaning, like it didn't historically happen, right? And that means that, like, you have to place. So it's a, operating on a naturalistic worldview as well. Right. So, the, yeah, on, it's called methodological naturalism. It's the philosopher Antip- uh, Alvin Plantica calls, uh, uh, speaks about, which is that you assume that the text doesn't have any divine origins mm-hmm. and therefore you assume a, a naturalistic worldview. Naturalism is, of course, uh, an entire worldview. Like uh, People just like the word atheism, but naturalism is not atheist, even though... Atheism is part of naturalism, mm-hmm. naturalism, but naturalism assumes there is no defined interaction with the with the universe. So the universe is a closed system, and everything that happens in it is physical, material causes, and it is not. Uh, it doesn't have any input from outside. Now, when you say methodological naturalism, is you don't you don't actually embrace the idea that God uh, doesn't exist. You just act as if he doesn't exist. So uh, as, uh, as uh, they will say, a, a Christian, a Jew, a atheist, or a Muslim, or a Hindu, they can all approach the biblical text as a academics in the same way because you don't assume any doctrine. So they're kind of expecting religious folks to adopt a schizophrenic attitude when uh, using biblical criticism, um, academic and approaching the Bible as historians. Okay, what do you think of that approach? Do you think that's reasonable to expect people to operate that way? Well, I think it's reasonable in the sense of the academy, right? Because in the sense of the academy, you want to have a standard. So I, I think that's reasonable. I don't think it's preferable, but I think it's reasonable. Uh, because, of course, Bible is a hot topic, and you have all these religious people trying to chime, is that the word in English? Mm-hmm. Chime in and, and put in their theology. And I understand that, the, depart- the biblical studies department didn't want it to become another divinity department. Mm-hmm. The problem is, of course, is that by even by acting as if the naturalism is true, you are assuming a worldview. So you're not really 
a neutral observer of the text, right? You are assuming a worldview. Now they will say, well, this is how we do history. This is the history department. The problem with that, of course, is that in the philosophy department, the question whether God exists or doesn't exist is fully debated, right? And in the philosophy department, uh, one can conclude that maybe there is a God. So if you assume there is a God, and then you assume that the biblical religion uh, describes an encounter with that God, then of course the problem becomes that, um, how do you say that, uh, that the, um, that, that uh, the problem becomes that you now cannot interpret the text in, in, in ways that allow for a divine being. Right. So if you conclude philosophically that it's reasonable, right, and you say, well, I can appeal to the philosophy department and I, this conclusion, theoretically, hypothetically, right, one should be able to have a religious worldview when doing biblical history, which one then has different conclusions. Now, of course, this is rife with all kind of politics and this is rife with all kind of um, problems that will come from that because, you know, what I just said, because they don't want religious infiltration. They don't want to become another divinity department. So it's the university politics. Luckily, we as religious Jews, we don't have this problem, right? We're not in the academy. I mean, maybe some will, but as a Jewish community, we have our own, uh, our own uh, uh, worldview and we can apply that to the text as we want, as, as we please. Yeah. Right. So this is what I'm, I'm going to ask you. What can we take from, right? What is going on in academic biblical studies that the theology departments are lacking that we need to incorporate or that you, you think, you know, as but a person? Berman brings this up, but also, uh, I think his name is Eichler. Barry uh, Eichler? Yes, correct. So, you know, you bring in... I'm on a first-name basis with all these people. Right. You, you, by, by, if you say that the text is re revealed or written in uh, ancient Mesopotamian Near Eastern world, then uh, that learning about that world will give you information about the text, right? It will give you insights into the text. Uh, so that that is uh, that is one. Also, if you say um, the uh, is an uh, if you say that the Torah is revealed in the language of man, of course, it's revealed in the language of ancient Mesopotamians, right? Okay, so how much of academic biblical studies is currently being utilized by the religious Jewish community, which I'm assuming is the scope of our conversation? Right. So the religious Jewish community is not very engaged with it, although now today they're more engaged with it. Like uh, Orthodox Jews are much more comfortable doing academic Talmud, right? And when I say Orthodox, I mean mostly modern Orthodox and... Uh, what are they called? The uh, open orthodox, right? Because because the uh, the ultra orthodox are not engaged with this at all. Um, so let me let me give you some something to the contrary, uh, and you know you can tell me if this fits into what you're saying. I remember reading this was years back about this edition of the Gemara that was written, that was put out by um, a Hasidish firm, I think, and using kind of like academic, um, like an academic approach to analyze the variant versions of of Talmud and to like replace things that had been censored out and to find like the the most uh, authentic version and I remember thinking even back then as a teenager that it was pretty academic and that they borrowed from the tools of the academic world to produce this Haredi oriented version of the Talmud do you know what I'm talking about I don't know specifically what you're talking about but I do know that approach right it is called uh, it's the uh 
it's a particular, uh, it's a, you, you, uh, you make a critical edition of yes, the text. Yes, that's, that's what I meant. Which where you try to establish the most historically accurate text. And when I say historically accurate, I mean as it was published originally, right? In the time, in the 5th or 7th century when the Gomorrah, the Bavli was closed. So there was an edition, well, obviously different versions of the Gomorrah, different versions. Uh, was there ever an authentic first edition for the Gomorrah? I assume there was, right? Of course there was, but uh, I assume the, the Babylonian academies, when they published it, right, they had a full version that, that, that had a certain shape and form. But um, over time, of course, not just because of Christian editors, but also because over time you... you transcribal you, errors. Yeah, transcribal errors. Organizational errors, human yeah. errors. <laughs> right, and people didn't copy the entire Talmud. People copied the Masech, the Duff, this, that, right? Like it wasn't like... There was like a, the the archival version uh, of the of anybody the got time for that. It was just like copied over and over, right? Like it was different parts, different pieces. So if you make a critical edition, you compare you compare the the, the those and you uh, and you uh, try to come up with the original, right? And uh, you would call it the textus receptus, like the Stati. received text as a, in its most authentic form. Now you say that they borrow from academic. Methods. Uh, methods, which is true because the academy will, of course, collect all these texts. But uh, the Vilna Gaon did this, right? He traveled around uh, Eastern Europe and looked at different versions of the Gemara and made a critical edition. And it goes all the way back in Chazal, in the time of Chazal. If you look, uh, there's Midrashim Agarada that speaks about that in the uh, Beis Mikdash they had three editions of the Torah. Mm, uh, this leads to my next question, which is, I was going to ask you today, is there any th- this kind of work going on with Tanakh? Right, so let me just finish. So they, they, ha- they, um, they had three editions of the Torah and they would go by rove, right? Go by the majority of the text. So if, if both editions agreed on this letter or this word, then they would write on this word. Right? So uh, you already have that idea of critical edition. I mean, they wouldn't have called it that but back in the mm-hmm. time of, uh, of Chazal itself. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to what extent does that occur these days? Critical editions of the Tanakh? Well, so with the Jewish people, not. Because in Orthodox, I mean, with or, within the firm community, not. Because we have a Masoretic text. And <clears throat> the Masoretic text of, of the Chumash and the Masoretic text of the all of Nach, of all of Tanakh, is uh, is virtually universally established. We have the Lenin's Codex and we have um, uh, all the bands. I forgot for a second from the Masorets, all the different versions of their... Ben Sirach? Uh, yeah, no, no, no. Ben Sirach is a apocryphal. Anyway, so there's different versions of the uh, of the Masoretic text and we have fairly complete Hebrew medieval text and later, later text that is uh, have a standard version. So we right. have... What's the earliest uh, point of uh, cohesion? From which we no longer deviate. I don't know. I know that in Leningrad, that is a complete text, but I don't know. It's uh, a good question. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of little pieces flying around. But in, what's what I was going to say, so that's the received text. So we have a tradition. This is the received text. This is copied within the Jewish community often. So that's the received text, the Masoretic tradition. But in academia, there is something called textual criticism and that they are very, very busy trying to... Uh, Establish the most authoritative text because they have different versions of the biblical text. And where do those different versions stem from? Well, obviously, the most famously are the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
right? So the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's different versions. Within the Dead Sea Scrolls itself, there's different versions of the same text. But uh, And the Masoretic text is something that was validated after the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, yeah, the Dead Sea Scrolls are, uh, are in the Second Temple period, and the Masoretic text is assumed to be take, starts taking shape in the 2nd and 3rd century as the official edition. Okay, so as a someone who is not very conversant with the 2nd Temple, I'm assuming um, by what you're saying is after the 2nd and 3rd century. What, what do you mean? You're saying that the Dead Sea Scrolls were 2nd and 3rd century, and the Masoretic Text 2nd Temple. No, the, 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 the Dead Sea Scrolls were during the 2nd Temple, which is before the destruction of the 2nd the, the, the Temple. Second Temple period. Right. And Metasoretic texts were compiled. We assume, they assume that it's during the second century. You know, you, because you start seeing... Uh, Which in, in relative to the Second Temple is what? Rabbi Akiva, people like... Uh, Before or after? <laughs> after, right after, right? It's after the Temple destruction, yes. Okay, thank you. That's all. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I assumed too much there. Uh, so... Um, he thinks I'm smarter than I am. No, that, I didn't mean that. <laughs> Of course, you are smarter than I am. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get stuck here. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. You're not, uh, not in trouble. I've never insulted by anything. Right. So the, there's a Masoretic text, uh, the Masoretic text from the second temple, uh, from the second century, and you see because we assume because we see the the laws in the Gomorrah about how to write a proper Sefer Torah, and they become more advanced over time. So we see that they start establishing these. Uh, these Gaulus laws, how to write down the text. Now, that doesn't mean that the Masoretic text didn't exist before the second century, right? Because they had an edition around. It just means that the, the version we have now, all the rules start developing around that. Okay. Are the Dead Sea Scrolls the only text that that is different than the Masoretic text? Well, there's different versions of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. But yeah, so there's there's many other texts. There's, for instance, the Samaritan Bible, which has... Different... Right. By many, do you mean like 10? Because I have a feeling that's what you mean. Because many, in you know, for a contemporary person, might mean like 100. But in the world, oh, yeah. in so, that world, it's probably like 10 pieces that are like the, two paragraphs yeah, yeah, long. Many variants, variant readings, right? So it's it's really small stuff. Like on average, it's really small stuff. Right. Can you Can you give us an example of the variances? What do you mean? The, the variances, let's say, from the Dead Sea Scroll to the Masoretic text or whatever other little fragments there are. What kind of differences are you talking about? There will be letter differences, but sometimes there's entire sentences difference. For instance, if you take the... Uh, or entire text differences. If you take the, uh, the, uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, of which we also have different textual versions, right? And the Septuagint has, in the book of Esther, it has a whole prayer that Mordechai has to Hashem. And we find a similar prayer in the Midrash, but we don't find that prayer in the Masoretic text. Now, so that is a big variant reading. So I don't know. It doesn't seem so shocking to me. Okay, so he said a prayer that wasn't included or was included. Right. Well, well, it doesn't change anything, uh, you know, conceptually not. or philosophically or theologically. Right. And also, uh, Targum, right, the translation often put interpretation in there. So when we, we get to the translations, and the, we have to start asking, is this an interpretation? Often the Septuagint changes around numbers that you find in the Humash of how many people and how many how many uh, years between certain things. Interesting. Why, why would it change numbers? Is it to try to make reconcile something and make it more yeah, reasonable? So the question is, I'm, I, I can't come up with like some clear examples, but there's certain certain 
certain places where we assume they they uh, they re recounted the years differently and then they just put a different version in. Okay. It's either that or they had a different version. And by they, you mean the people who translated the Septuagint, which would be... Well, the Septuagint, the Septuagint itself is... Uh, the, the five books of the Chumash are traditionally ascribed to the uh, the seventy sages, ranging. Right. So this is the traditional Jewish view. What, is there an academic view of who yes, translated it? Yes, we don't it? know. Mm -hmm. Okay. A lot of academic stuff is we don't know. That's the. <laughs> yeah, this is always the sad thing. You know, some people go OTD and they're really excited, and then they're really excited about citing things that we don't know, but then they're really. And then you're like, nah, it's not as exciting. Though. Right. So I actually, I think, I think it's important for you to talk about this because, um, given the nature of your your presumed audience, and you know, again, this is being colored by my experience growing up in the Haredi world. I think that there is a lack of understanding of the um, rigor, perhaps, or the the perceived rigor of the academic world, because I think that when you say, you know, things like differences or certainty in history which you know really harkens to like how do we know anything about history and, and about especially about ancient times which you know we have far less information than we have about contemporary times i think that it might be useful to um explain the level the the methods that they use the level of information the level of certainty that they have because i think that people who don't know that field might feel it to be more rigorous than it really is well it's rigorous it's just you have to understand it in its own context like we don't know a lot of things right ancient israel is not ancient egypt ancient egypt has nice large pillars nice large buildings writing everywhere paintings everywhere right there's they interact with multiple societies and uh, some of those societies also write down stuff so you have like Right, conflicting. Uh, you have like conflicting narratives from from different societies. Like Egypt says, them. "I won," and the enemy says, "Actually, it was me." Things like that, right? See, but, I know, I know how people work even back then. Right. So, mm -hmm. so, so, uh, to be an Egyptologist is always more exciting because there's much more going on because you just much more stuff to dig up, right? But but to be a biblical biblical history is also interesting because obviously there is a whole body of text that is transmitted over time that we still have which is the biblical text so but because we don't have such uh elaborate archaeological digs uh biblical historical studies are often related mostly to uh to reading the text and trying to interpreting and try to try to read the try to figure out when certain things were written and when certain things were uh and, and in what circumstances something would be written. And it's very speculative. It's very speculative. There's a, there's a wonderful scholar uh, uh, called Richard Elliot Friedman. He wrote this book, uh, who, wrote the, who Wrote the Bible? And that's really about the Chumash. And he has the chapter in there. I haven't read this in years, but uh, he has a chapter in there that, uh, that says, a brilliant mistake. And then basically he explains how um, the... Um, the scholars of uh, of uh, of the past, the academic scholars of the past, dated uh, Yom Kippur to be from the second. The text about Yom Kippur and the Chumash to be in the second temple because period because they felt bad about the destruction of the first temple and they had like a really bad feeling. So it must be wow. This is so beyond literary criticism. I mean, it's like 
as somebody who's like into literature and poetry, this just reminds me of that. <laughs> right. So I, it's funny. He calls it a brilliant mistake. But if you read it, it's like uh, they're just, you know, they just have um... throwing pasta on the wall. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. It's just very it's not hard science and it's not it's not what we normally do with 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 history right it's not like when you do the history of the second world war you have all these newspapers and 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 messages and even video material and and equipments and everything you have a whole world of information and here you have a bunch of you have a text that is received and you assume that the text that you have has a history and then you try to read it into it and it's very speculative so it's a it's a very soft soft approach now yeah very soft Right, so, um, yeah, so it's 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 hard to establish things. I mean, that's just a soft science. But what is this? Okay, so I mean, if this is the monster that the Orthodox world is fearing, and this is like an imaginary monster, if, I don't <laughs> think so. I see. I don't. No, 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 no. No, obviously, you know, you know that. Obviously, I'm not talking about the entire field, but an example like that, saying that, oh, they established Yom Kippur at a certain time period because they felt guilty about something. I mean, that is just totally unconvinced. I'm not. I'm not saying it's. I'm not. You can't say it's necessarily wrong, but there's nothing. Nothing to tell me that it should be correct. It's just some idea, some speculation, right? So, yeah, but that I'm not. I'm not saying not that what brings into question uh, Yiddishkeit, right? These are just small details, small little things, and uh, but there is definitely a. There's a question, of course. There's 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 arguments to be made for that the text isn't a unilater uh, a unified text. There's arguments to be made that it's from different time periods, right? But yeah, of course, when the biblical critic, when the academic Bible scholar who's using methodological naturalism approaches the text, he is not, he or she, let's be modern about this, he or she is not asking, oh, how can I undermine religion or I'm dealing with, right? They're trying to figure out when these texts are. So they don't have in mind to attack Firmkite or anything. That's not their plan. That's not their goal. Right. So Wait, you mean that people in academia don't want to make everyone unreligious right, exactly. and so, destroy the foundations no, you, of our faith? You intuitively figured out what I'm hinting at because of they're course, not all of, evil monsters. No way. Of course, a lot of firm people, right? They think that um, if you're gonna, if you that they, these people are looking for ways not to be religious and to undermine religion. Now, I'm sure there is motivations. There's, there's, there is. People have their own motivations and incentives and, uh, and backgrounds. Of course, that play a role, and I do think that it plays a big role. I don't think we're objective, right? But they're not sitting there uh, trying to undermine religion twenty four seven, right? It might sometimes someone might have a, an angry past or something, but that's not the goal. And they're, they're arguing with other academics within the field. So if they have a bias, they more likely have a bias against another academic then they have a bias against religion because they're not thinking about religion when they're doing that work okay so how much interaction do they have with let's say the theology departments how much engagement do either of them have with each other well i'm not in the academic academy so i don't know i just read their books right but the the, the theology department is much more busy with them than they are with the theology department because this is a very sad unilateral relationship <laughs> they don't share the same uh unreciprocated love Right, they don't share. They don't. They don't. They don't. They don't. They're not looking for a theological explanations. But here, what I said that's why I, I wanted to call this biblical criticism from heaven. Right, if you're a religious person, uh, we we can. I think there's value in doing historical work, and and from a religious perspective, and 
you know, that can take its own unique form, but I do think it's valuable for the firm community to interact with this material. Um, Berman himself says that a lot of people read things online and they lose their faith. And then, you know, there's no, there's no Jewish response to these things because people are not aware of these things that we don't have our own interaction with, with the historical method. So, Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's going on? Like, what are, what are people like Joshua Berman doing to engage with biblical academic biblical studies? Well, he himself is a is a scholar. He's an academic scholar, so he himself uh, he himself uh, has argued against documentary hypothesis and uh, has given different uh, different uh, scenarios uh, how you can reconcile certain things to the text. Um, he is very big into uh, into uh, Using ancient Mesopotamian, uh, ancient Near Eastern, mm-hmm. Mesopotamia is a little specific, ancient Near Eastern knowledge to apply to understanding the text. And his criticism is that the old school academic Bible often do not apply the Near Eastern studies to to their text. They just sit there in their own, they look at the biblical text and they have their own hypothesis within the text. So he, he uh, tries to interact more with me, Near Eastern uh so he's basically telling them that there aren't they aren't doing their own field properly. No, he's not. There's a. He's not telling them anything. He, he is just part of the school of thought, which has a lot of non-religious people in it too. That interacts more with the, the ancient Near Eastern, uh, the ancient Near Eastern part uh, of analyzing the history, which is I think is much more robust than than than, than this uh, than documentary hypothesis uh, approach. Solely the documentary hypothesis. How popular is the documentary hypothesis these days, and how much, um, what percentage of biblical academic studies engages in just the documentary hypothesis rather than the more historically um, bound analysis? I don't know how popular it is. It, it, it's definitely still the mainstream, I would say. Uh, but there's, it's much more disputed now than ever. When I, so it's, go ahead. When I first converted to Judaism, I was lucky because I was already. A, before I converted, when I was looking into Judaism, I already was picking up books on biblical history. So I was already exposed to uh, these academic uh, studies. So I never had like, I was never made uncomfortable by it because I was already exposed before I decided to convert to religion, right? So this is not like something shocking I will then discover. So but when I just started, when I was just starting converting within the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, Already then, they had this whole stream called literary criticism. It takes the Bible from a literary perspective, and often uh, they they come in conflict with the documentary hypothesis people because the documentary hypothesis assumes that uh, two parts of mm, got it. of the same text are from different time periods. And so you can't have any analysis running because there's the no them. unity. The disunity between the two parts shows that it's a different source, and then the literary. Uh, critics, they would see a whole uh, narrative in there that couldn't be there if they were just put together different sources, like chaotically. Mm-hmm. So, did they ever reconcile those two uh, those two viewpoints? I don't think it's ever reconciled. No, I just think uh, as as I uh, as I came uh, as I came uh, older and, and as I was converted to Judaism over time, just if you looked at the books more and more. There start to be different opinions about everything and biblical studies. And Berman also talks about it. Really, I should have Berman on at some point. You know, biblical studies themselves, there's just many uh, 
you know, shift upon him uh, the biblical studies. There's like <laughs> seven of the uh, phases to biblical studies. They mm-hmm. also have become very divided, and there's different approaches now. So they have irreconcilable differences. Can't get along. Well, just, there's a lot of disagreements. There's a lot of different disagreements in the field itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. So from what you're saying, it sounds to me also that documentary hypothesis is completely um, bound in and of itself. It doesn't rely on external data, historical well, that's the that is, that, is, that is what people argue against. And now, of course, in the Olama Emmas, right, like everything is much more nuanced, like different 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 people, different scholars do different things and they mix mm-hmm. up things and, uh, and it's much more messy. There's not like, oh, you have this exact group and that exact group and, right? So it's much more messy, but there is much more division now in the, in the biblical field. And um, How many people are you talking about when you say biblical scholars in the biblical field? I don't know. See, I'm not in the academy. A couple of thousand? It's, it, it, so how do you count, right? This is another thing. How do you count who is a biblical scholar, right? Because... There's many seminaries where people are evangelical Christians that teach biblical history that are great scholars, great minds, right? But obviously they 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 uh, they have a don't operate on the Christian naturalism. Yeah, they don't operate in that field, and it's clear that they don't assume these things. And uh, they will have uh, they will have a, do to count them, right? So uh, so some people will say. No, some people say yes, and that's just all subjective how you feel about things, like it's how you feel about the discipline. So, yeah, I don't think there is a, you can't really say how many people are engaged. It is definitely more people are engaged with this than any other historical uh, field. You know, my sister-in-law in Holland is an archaeologist of uh, of Dutch medieval history, and it's like Graves her, in particular. Right, it's her and like a handful of people, and that's it, right? So they all know each other by name, right? So here it's a... But they know each other's shoe size too. Because religion is such a popular topic and the Bible is such an influential text. It's, it's a massive field. It's a massive field. And who do you count? Who do you don't count? I don't know. It's, uh, I don't know. And then you have the biblical archaeologists. How about they, they fit in? It becomes a real, uh, you know, I can't count that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is actually, you mentioned archaeology. It brings me back to a question you had early, I had earlier when you were talking about how Egypt has a ton of records left behind. So, um, uh, a relative ton for ancient studies. It's not like I see. So basically, like ancient Poland, Israel, medieval Poland. There's more text about medieval Poland than there is of ancient Egypt, right? Yeah, got it. So ancient Israel was just not as developed in the sense of leaving behind artifacts that we could study. Artifacts, texts. They were not big builders, mm. right? And we were nomads. Well, they're not nomads. <laughs> Obviously, you can't have pastoral. They, well, they started out in nomads. I don't Temporary know artists. Uh, okay. so, Modern dancers. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you can't... Uh, no, they were not. They, they, they started out with these tribe tribes, nomadic tribes traveling around, right? And then they established themselves in the land. And then at some point, they centralized their monarchy. So they became a, a real... Uh, I don't want to use the word nation-state because nation-state didn't exist until like recently. But yeah, they became their own centralized government mm-hmm. so then they're no longer nomads but uh and did they were they less sophisticated i would say that is a crazy thing to say because we have the biblical text they're just a different type of of society but the biblical text is very complex i mean this is this is not some barbarian writings there is like 
literature, there's like all kind of structures in there, poetic structures and uh, literary devices and all kind of things you can find in the biblical text that shows that the ancient Israelites were a very complex society. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to say, but yeah, they didn't build, they were not big builders, you know, they were not the America of uh, of the ancient... Uh, America? Oh, we're going to say oh. Paris. Yeah, we just went to Europe last, you know, a couple months ago and afterwards I have grown ashamed of our lack of beautiful buildings. <laughs> you have big skyscrapers. Mindy loves herself in Paris. I'm Dutch, so I don't really feel an attachment to my ancient enemies. But yeah, it's a nice place. I know you're rolling your eyes. <laughs> yeah, you were just as overwhelmed and awed as I was. I'm not. I'm going to be Dutch about it. I'm going to be, oh, yeah, that was nice. That's nice. Okay, you said that Holland didn't have nice buildings like Paris did, Yoel. Big buildings. Okay, because all the buildings from the 19th century. We're not going to go in there. <laughs> anyway, right. So I want to. I want to really focus in on the firm part because I think as firm community, uh, we, we, we can engage with the historical method and we can think about it on our own terms and in our own, in our own, from our own worldview to whatever, like obviously there's different Ascafas. I have a very minimalist Ascafa, right? I believe there's a God. I believe he has revealed himself and I believe there's reward and punishment. You right? put me in your life to make, enhance it, make it better. Right. And so... Right. So Actually, the, he doesn't believe that. He doesn't believe in Ashkacha Pratis like that. But I just How do you that. know I don't believe in Ashkacha Pratis like that? I know you, y'all. No, that's not true. Man. You don't know me. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I thought you... Well, I guess we could leave this for a different podcast. Well, then. I think Ashkacha, right? It's possible, right? It's I possible, think, right? But I don't think necessarily, necessarily so. Necessarily so, right. Well, yeah, I even know the right terminology. You know, right. Okay, you know. I do know you. Right. So, yeah, I don't... I don't... I actually do not... To people's great surprise, right? Like, let's take biblical studies, right? I am very open to the idea that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't write the Torah and that it, uh, that that he just had the laws revealed to him, the legal system, and that over time, people wrote the text, right? I'm open to that idea. Uh, there's somebody shown him they're open to similar ideas, you know. So there certainly is a case to be made in the tradition for that. Even though it's not popular right now, but it, there was a, there's a case to be made. I'm open to that, but I'm also open to like the most extreme mystical view where every single letter was given by God, right? I'm open to all these. You're views. really as equally open to that. Yeah, I'm I'm equally open to that in the sense that I'm open to it, right? Do I think it's plausible, right? Like, well, I'm I'm what my friend calls a reverent agnostic. Is that how you would say it? Reverent agnostic. Okay. Meaning, I'm not agnostic about God, but I ha- I am respectfully unknowing like i don't know the exact history of these things and i think you can you can speculate in many ways on that and Mm -hmm. you can and i think the really from worldview right if you believe as i do and i think there's good arguments for it that there's a god who is omniscient right and who can interact who can and does interact with the universe that he would reveal a text that has like multiple layers of mystical kabbalistic who knows what right Mm -hmm. And every detail, every letter is the, revealed to him, right? That is not logically impossible, right? right? Maybe it's less plausible or maybe it's not, maybe it's less like very hard to establish such a thing with a historical method, right? Right. Because I mean, yeah, you have to establish also like did the ancient Israelites have this worldview, right? Like, right. Or is this just a Neoplatonic idea from the Middle Ages? Well, if it's a Neoplatonic idea from the Middle Ages, you could say it's a hidden tradition, right? Like if you can... There's a lot of factors that come in that make it less plausible that's the case, but it's possible. I'm open to it. I'm very open to these things. I think people are too uh, 
They Dogmatic. Make, yeah, they make things into an identity. I'm a rationalist. And then like, and whatever they think by rationalist, that's what they then apply. And it, it's then about your identity rather than like exploring the text and just, especially if you don't know, it's hard to establish these things. So people get really like, ooh, they get really hang up on their identity. I'm this, so I believe this. And as a this, I think that, right? Like, which is of course, like, okay, that's not going to be a good basis for exploring the text. Right. So your your approach would appeal to some people and turn a lot of people off because people like to have certainty in their lives and they like to know where they stand, especially on issues like this, where often, you know, it relates to something that is more emotional to them and probably depending on how they were raised, um, you know, can relate to a whole bunch of emotional triggers for them. So they might find your approach unsatisfying and other people love your approach. Like I like your approach. That's how you think, you know, one of the reasons we both like, you know, are into each other is because we both have this open-minded, um, laissez-faire approach. Right. So some people are turned off by that, but that's, that's with everything, right? Like, like that's not just religion. That is everything. People don't like to, uh, this, what I just said, exists everywhere. Like this mindset where you're like, people need a certainty or to have a strict identity. And like you see, like, for instance, I like uh, if you if you if you peruse around philosophical political thought. Right. Right. Like people say, I am a free market libertarian and therefore I will always have to interpret any action the government does according to that abstract, simple rule of freedom or the non-aggressive principle or whatever. Right. So it becomes very rigid. And then because of their identity, they can't even think outside of the box because I'm this kind of person. Right. I'm and, rolling my eyes very heavily at this moment in time. Okay, says the lady who voted for Gary Johnson. Yeah, that's oh. true. I did vote for Gary Johnson. Oh, oh, thank you, Gary Johnson. Aleppo Codex. Aleppo Codex <laughs> is the other famous Masoretic text. I voted for Gary Johnson not because I was a big believer in no. libertarian principles, but because I didn't like the other candidates. I like. I was an. Anti I was a contrarian. I like all of these out-of-the-box ideas and I like mainstream ideas as a lot of things I like. So, but right, which also there, people have these identities and then they interpret everything through that lens. So you see that also to, uh, you know, uh, when people approach uh, uh, religion or anything else, right? So, yeah, so we're going on for 45 minutes and I'm rambling, uh, but I wanted to talk about, what I wanted to talk about is that there is a way to give, right? for the firm community, like to, there's a reason to think, right? I think there is good philosophical arguments that there is a God. <clears throat> and I think there is good philosophical arguments that that God interacted with the universe and that he revealed himself uh, to the Jewish people. Now, I think the arguments for God's existence are much stronger than the arguments for revelation. revelation but I do think that the arguments that if if the biblical religion is revealed, and if you check the Bible, then Judaism, right, is the the correct religion that flows out of the biblical text, not Christianity, not uh, womp womp. Huh? I was saying womp womp. Well, I certainly don't have. I don't certainly don't disrespect Christianity, as you know. We know that he's a very enamored I'm a of big Christians. Fan of I'm a Christophile. I'm the only Jewish Christophile. <laughs> no, but it, not Islam. Right? Noel so is I, a lot of things file, by the way. I really like stuff. No, so, so but there is a, there is an argument to make for Judaism if the right. So so there's three steps to it. Like God exists, revelation, and 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 if revealed, then Judaism is the most reasonable outcome 
of that, uh, and you can you can dissect it in Karaism, Karaites versus rabbinic, whatever. But yes, I think there's a good case to be made there, um, and I think it's more plausible than not ultimately. So I think it's, one is justified to hold to Judaism as a religion. Now, uh, many people don't like that. First of all, it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of work to establish these things because you just have to do a lot of reading. So not everyone has time for that. And also, like people's minds. Don't... May I may I recapitulate that in the popular vernacular? Ain't nobody got time for that. Okay, yeah, I'm not American, so I'm not going to be all American about that. But yeah, so uh, so you know, but I do think there. So I do think there is a justification to operate within the system of human thought and the canons of knowledge to operate like a firm Jew doing biblical history, uh, the way I would do biblical history would be, of course, very amateuristic in many ways, but... Uh, really? You think so? Yeah, because, like, because I'm not a, you know, it takes a lot of work to do all these little levels, but on a general picture, right, when I when I, when I do sort of uh, apply philosophical uh, philosophical principles to the text and and then try to figure out things, then, you know, in some general picture, yeah, I think one is justified to, to do a Jewish... Uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. Hmm. Okay. From from approach to because here I wanted to say this because right there's arguments to be made that um, the universe has a creator and that this creator is um, is immaterial is uh, um, uh, uh, spaceless is uh, extremely powerful because he has to be able to create the create the universe right so and you know, like it's Occam's razor. Let's keep it simple now. Like it should be one cause. You, you postulate a, a cause. This cause should have volition because it has to be able to... Uh, Why to are you reading philosophy in a podcast about biblical academic studies? No, but because I think that like there's there's this God that you can come out through re- reason, philosophical arguments, right? And that God is also in the biblical text, right? The God that you find through reason is the same God as that you can find in the biblical text or Similar enough to to just to say like well well that right? I think is something which very... is very different. Let me finish. This is very different than Zeus, right? It's not Zeus is a material being, right? People think of Zeus. Oh no, they also believe he was a transcending being. They didn't believe ancient didn't believe Zeus was a transcending being. That is only in the third century Neoplatonic paganism. But like right, the biblical God of monotheism is found through reason and is also found in the biblical text. And then I have to ask the question. Right? How is that the same God of reason is the God in the, that we find here among these ancient Israelites, who themselves, and your Amazoni will be upset when I say that, who themselves were not philosophers. Your Amazoni wrote a book about the philosophy of Hebrew scripture. Hmm. He wants to argue that the biblical text is a philosophical text. Hmm. I mean, it's not a bad book. They had some justifications, but they themselves are not philosophers in the uh, in the later sense of the world. Right, so, I'm gonna... so how did they come up with a monotheism that reflects the uh, the reason, right? So he then, revealed himself. And therefore, if, because these two collapse, right, the, the God that you derive from systematic theology, from the statements in Tanakh, mm-hmm. that you can derive this being, that you can also find through reason independently, you can start, you have a, you have a robust philosophical justification to start doing history when you look at the biblical text as if these ancient people encountered this being that you know exists. So this is um, slightly tangential, but I've known about this, you know, your, ever since we met, you've talked about your philosophical, your understanding of philosophical, philosophical God, philosophically confound God in the Hebrew 
Bible. Now, it's interesting that you, because you're a very philosophical person and you're a very cerebral person and you're not an emotional person, that's what you see when you see the, the, the God of the Bible. And I think many other people, and I'm going to count myself, when I see the God of the Bible, I see much more a personal God, an emotional God, a temperamental, you know, and a relational God, a father, a, a husband, you know, upset at his wandering wife, um, you know, with I see the anger, I see the passion. And I don't see the philosophy as much because I'm not a philosopher. I, I hear, I see it. I understand what you're saying, but it's interesting that that's what you see when you look at the Bible. No. And I and many other people see the emotion. No, because what you're describing is the personality of that gap. Right? If I analyze the universe, right, and I, I analyze it like a first cause or a sort of Leibnizian explanation of the universe, and I derive like, I know, I have to be more, like, like I derive that there is a God, right? That, that God that I find through reason is not, that doesn't tell me about his personality, right? Right. So when he is encountered in the biblical text, right, all those extra things that he has a friendship with, with Abraham, and what does that mean, right? Right. These I also think of that, but that when I say that the God that I, the philosophical God that comes out of the Bible is very stripped of those things, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like I can describe you the biology of a of a person, so you know, okay, there's humans and they have a body. And, you know, but that doesn't tell you anything about Jim. When Jim walks up to you, like, hey, I'm Jim and I'm a plumber. Now you know all this information, right? Hey, I'm God, took you out of Egypt, mm -hmm. isn't that, right? So there's all these extra things. I'm the father, I'm your king, right? This is, that is the personality of God as he reveals it. And we can go into uh, right. if how, what, what, how would I philosophically, does God really have a personality in the way we mean? Or that he just chose to reveal himself in a more personal way, right? But his personality as is found in the Tanakh, that is a separate question. That is that you only find through personal experience or, you know, historical events. Right. I just think it's interesting how everyone's personality colors their perception of what they read. Mm. You know, I see this like um, I have degrees in different fields. And with every degree that I learn, I look at the world through a different lens, through that lens. You know, psychology, English, business now. And I, you know, I see the personality also colors our perceptions. Oh, this is a very interesting topic. Yes. So here's one of the things that is very essential, which you just, you from psychology, you would know, right? We have subconscious biases. We have all kinds of external influences that, that, in, that, that create the way we see the world, right? So you always have to, you know, not take yourself all that serious, right? Or that we, you know, that's the reason, or the reason, right? This is getting into like God's plan, but reality is, is there's many different kinds of people and every person contributes uh, a part to a whole. Right. So when I do biblical, if I want to say, when I do philosophy or trying to do biblical history on my own terms, right, I am fully aware I'm a very subjective person. Uh, I'm not, you know, human beings aren't objective. I'm just one person in his living room trying to figure this out, right? Like, so I'm very aware of the limitations of my own uh, thinking, right? And you just have to be, you have to just accept that, uh, right? Okay, I think this is a good place to stop. And because our neighbors downstairs are, are fighting in front of our house. I don't know, something. I want to actually hear what's going on there. And um, yeah, and also it's approaching an hour. And I think that this would be a good place, if anybody is listening, to write in some questions and see what you will can say. Right. Well, maybe next time we'll do more organized thinking. I feel like I was a little chulant of ideas. Right you now. definitely were. And I'm your wife and I'm confused. But, you know, listen, that's how it is. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that's where it ends then. Okay, have a good one. Bye.